as we get into the sermon, I want to wish you a happy Valentine's Day. And as I do that, I know that wells up different responses within you. Uh, some of you love Valentine's Day, and you do the chocolates, you do the date nights, and you're all into it. Some of you can't stand the people that love Valentine's Day. And then some of you just forgot that today is Valentine's Day, till just now. And you're beginning to scramble in your head, I know you are, about a surprise date night, a romantic getaway that you're coming up with tonight. And so if that's you, I'll be praying for you as I speak in the Spirit. And so I'll be praying for you tonight as, and see how that goes with your spouse. But we all have different responses to Valentine's Day. I actually proposed to my wife 10 years ago today on Valentine's Day. And so single guys, the bar has said hi. No pressure. If you're with your girlfriend, I just made that really awkward for you. But just, you know, be prayerful about that and see what God might have for you. Uh, as we go through a book of the Bible, uh, we're not talking about romantic love today. Uh, but we are going to talk a lot about Jesus, who's the ultimate act, the ultimate demonstration of love. And as we get into it, we, we see in First Peter a lot about hope and holiness. And we've been walking through that over these past five weeks. And at the end of last week's sermon, we talked about living such good lives amongst other people that at the end of the day, they would glorify God because of it. That was the last verse. That's how we capped the sermon last week. And you would think as, as Peter began to flesh that out, that he would talk about some lofty things. You would think that he would go on to talk about maybe something like loving people, like teaching the Bible, like serving the poor. But as we get into this passage that Scott read, he, he doesn't talk about any of that, at least not directly. What he talks about is submission. Submission. That if we're going to live honorable lives so that other people glorify God, that we have to get this idea of submission. And the reality is, even as I say that word, some of you get a little spasm in your neck, Right? <laughs> Some of you get a little standoffish, like, what is that going to mean? What is that going to talk about for my life and the way it works out in my life? Submission. And what we're going to see as we look at Peter is that all the negative connotations that we have are not what God desires. Like, some of you have those negative connotations. You think of head coverings. Maybe some of you think of just keeping silent. Maybe some of you men think of a UFC fight. And you think of that chokehold where you have to tap out and submit, and you're thinking, I don't want to do that. So we all have these negative connotations of submission, but what we're going to see, the core of Peter's message is that we should submit for the Lord's sake. That this is God's design. That it's a good design, and in fact, we're going to talk about it for the next three weeks. So get comfy with submission. We're going to talk about it in our society today. We're going to talk about it in marriage. We're going to talk about it in the church. And so here's where we're going this morning. If you take notes, you can write this down. We're going to talk about submission, the meaning of submission, the motive behind submission, and the means by which we submit. And so that's where we're going. Verses 13 through 20, we're going to see the meaning and the motive. And I'm just going to sum it up for you. Again, if you take notes, you should write this down. The, the whole of our passage, what we see as godly, biblical submission is this. You ready? The submission is setting aside my authority by coming up under authority to show God as 
ultimate authority. You see that? The submission, godly submission, is setting aside our authority by coming under authority to show God as the ultimate authority. And so we're going to pack what that looks like, and we see a few things just in these next few verses. Verses 13, it says, be subject. That's to sit under someone. It says in verse 15, to do good. Verse 16, to live like free servants. We're going to unpack that in a little bit, but we're free, but we're also servants. Verse 17, he kind of sums it up. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. And so we're going to unpack that, what that looks like, who we actually submit to. In the first couple verses, verses 13 and 14, he says every human institution. He talks about emperors, governors. And as you and I think about that, we have to give a disclaimer. And that disclaimer is this, that you don't submit to man if that means sinning against God. And so some of you might be thinking, well, what, what about the corrupt rulers who call people to kill in their name? What about the corrupt rulers who call us to deny Jesus? What about the corrupt rulers who, who promote sin and mandate sin? Do we have to submit to them? And the answer is no. There's, there's lots of biblical examples of this. One is Daniel in the Old Testament. You can go back and read that. One in the New Testament that involves Peter, the author of this book, is in Acts chapter 5. What's taking place in that passage, you can look it up later, Acts 5, is Peter, along with some of the other disciples, they're going out, they're teaching about Jesus as the Messiah, as the, the risen king. And they get thrown in prison for that, but they get broken out of prison, and they go right back to proclaiming Jesus and teaching about Jesus. And they end up standing before authorities, and the authorities say, we told you to cut that out. That's the paraphrase, the message version, right? Like, we told you to cut that out, guys. And here's what they say in response to that, Acts 5, verse 29. They say, we must obey God rather than men. And so listen, this is going to get a little wordy, but I think it will help you. When are we free from submission to the government? It's this, when man forbids what God commands. When man forbids what God commands, we're free from submission. We don't have to submit to that. Or when man commands what God forbids. You got that? So when are we free to not submit? When are we free to not follow this? What's the disclaimer? When man forbid what when man forbids what God commands, or when man commands what God forbids. Yeah, you got it. I hear you. You got it. So some of you are racking your brains. You're trying to rack your brains around that statement and figure that out. But some of you are racking your brains about, okay, so where's the line? Right? Where's the line? Like, where can I not submit? Where can I rebel and be justified? And so to that and to you, I have to give another disclaimer to this disclaimer. And that's this, that sometimes we're too quick to soften the blow, aren't we? To find an out. Like Jesus says, love your enemies. And we think there's got to be some context around that. We don't actually have to do that, right? We read a passage on submission, and we immediately start thinking, like, there's got to be some ways around that. And listen, there is a disclaimer. You shouldn't sin. But for the most part, uh, Peter is getting at the heart of submission, while we don't want to do it, the pride that's within us. And that's what we're going to get at today is the, the heart 
of submission that most often we're not going to find ourselves in extreme scenarios, right? We've talked about this a couple times, or at least I have, because this is the way I think. But I often like to think of my Braveheart scenario, right? Where it's deny Jesus or obey the law. It's one or the other. It's deny Jesus or give up my spouse or give up one of my children or obey the the king. And listen, I don't want to break down those images in your head and when you watch Braveheart, but that's probably never going to happen to you. But what may happen is the daily grind of life, the mandates from our government, the commands from your boss, the orders sent down from your boss, what may happen is those things in the daily things of life, and you're going to be called to submit. And so we want to see what does that look like. It's the heart of submission. Submission, again, is setting aside our authority by coming under authority to show God as the ultimate authority because he is the ultimate authority. You need to know that, that God, at the end of the day, he is the ultimate authority. And that when we submit, we show that. We get that from Romans 13. It says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so just from that verse, who is ultimately in charge? God, right. God is ultimately in charge, and the only reason any ruler has any position or power is because God allows it. A great example of this is Jesus coming to earth. And so we're not too far removed from Christmas. So where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, right? Why did Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem? Yeah, because a decree went out by a guy named Caesar Augustus, the emperor at the time, that they would be registered. And so they find themselves in Bethlehem. Are you tracking with me? Do you see where this is going? That God used an emperor, God used a ruler to bring about the Redeemer. That God works through a ruler, God works through a leader to bring about the Redeemer, to change the world forever. And he works through an emperor. That God is always ultimately the one who is in charge, the one who ultimately has the authority, that no one, listen, no one, not today, not then, no one is in a position of power if God doesn't allow it. That should comfort us. That should encourage us. That God is working through these men, working through these women to bring about his ultimate purpose. Here's what that means. As we look at our governing structure today, as we look at leaders, even in our culture today, that sometimes God is working out a greater purpose. That sometimes God is working out a greater purpose that we can't always see. The birth of Jesus. We didn't really see that. They probably didn't see that coming, that this would change the world for eternity through an emperor's decree. And it's the same way today. That God's working out his ultimate purpose through the authorities in our lives. And so listen, I want you to step back for a second. I know we're in the political season, but I just want you to pause and step back and consider there may be more going on than you can see. And so as you think about the current president and it, and it drives you crazy and you have panic, 
and fear around that? What if you just step back a little bit and see God may have a greater purpose? As you think about the next president and who's it going to be and I wish we had more options, what if you stepped back and realized God may have a greater purpose? Listen, could it be, could it be that the things that we think are going to bring the world to an end or actually the means by which God is bringing us a redeemer who saves us and changes our lives for eternity. Could that be? We may not be able to see it yet. We may struggle with that, and listen, that's okay. But at the end of the day, we trust God as the ultimate authority, that he allows us to submit to authority to set aside our authority because we know he is ultimately the one in charge. Listen, if we get this, if you get this, it changes everything. It did for Peter's audience. These are a people, remember they're exiles. They're dispersed under the cruel rule of an emperor named Nero. And it doesn't crush them. Instead, they multiply missionaries as they scatter out. They begin to start churches that further the gospel, that further the mission of God through this cruel act of Nero that disperses these people from their homes, that God is still glorified, that his mission still goes forth through an evil act of an emperor. We see it in our day, the difficulty in governments and in the world, that we trust that God is going to work mightily through all of that. Make no mistake Whatever it appears to be, that God is ultimately the one in charge. And if you know God, you're on his team, and we win in the end. Amen? You trust that. You take comfort in that. And when you grasp that, listen, you have the world in checkmate. That laws can be passed that you disagree with, and you cannot be shaken. That your boss can bring down orders at your work that you don't like and they're not for your good and you can have no fear. That a president can get elected, that policies can become in place and you stand firm in your liberty in Jesus Christ. That as Christians, as followers of Jesus, who know that God is the ultimate authority, That allows us to set aside our authority. Do you see that? Because we trust that God is in control, that he's in charge, that we win in the end. Because he wins in the end. You have the world in checkmate if you believe that. There's nothing that can phase you. Will it be hard? Yeah. Will you struggle with it at times? Absolutely. But as you live amongst a world who doesn't know Christ, who all they have is the momentary pleasures and positions and success and satisfaction of getting their way, as you live amongst that world, you're different. We read it last week that you're a holy nation. Listen, I love America. I do. And I want you to vote and use that privilege. It's a great privilege that not a lot of people have. So don't hear me saying that this morning. I'm talking about the panic, the fear, the anxiety, the idols that you set up in your life because you're putting some hope in a man. 
that God is saying, I'm ultimately the one in charge, that I put these people into place, Romans 13. That you can trust me. And so get out there and vote, rally, do what you need to do. But at the end of the day, in your heart, don't go to a place of panic. Don't get wrapped up in fear. Surrender to authority because you're ultimately surrendering to God and that nothing can shake you. Do you experience that kind of freedom? Because that's what Peter's getting at. In verse 16, he says we're free, but we're also servants. We're free, but we're also servants. Do you experience that kind of freedom? Does that make sense to you? Do you look different in that you're free unto God and you're servants under authority? That you see how those things correlate because you know God is the ultimate authority. Do you experience that? Maybe some of you are thinking freedom and, and servants. Well, those things seem opposite, right? They seem like they contradict one another. Yesterday I was at an event and we were singing a song. And the lyrics just really stuck out to me, particularly for what we're talking about today. So I took a picture of it. And it says this. It says, I'm free because I'm bound. I'm free because I'm bound. And it said, I'm bound for heaven's gates. I'm free because I'm bound. I'm bound for heaven's gates. That We are free, not so we can do whatever we want, but we are free to serve and worship and come under the most high God, the God who loves us perfectly, who's just, who's sinless who knows all, who sees all, that we're free from our sin, sickness, and strife to serve him. That we're free because we're bound to him. We're free because we know at the end of the day that he wins, that we're going to be with him forever, for eternity. Do you experience that freedom? That at work, when circumstances get tough, when your boss has good days, but then he has those bad days, have you experienced that? Do you experience that freedom? Are you different to where other coworkers come around you and they say, man, why aren't, why aren't you scared with all these layoffs? As people come around you, family members, friends, why are you scared about the state of our country? Why aren't you in panic? Why aren't you going to Costco every day? Like what? What, what's different about you? Are you experienced that where, where people ask you those questions because they see you're different? That this is not your nation, that you're a holy nation. You're meant for something greater, that God is working a greater purpose in you and through you. And therefore, you can trust and you can submit because you can show through that that God is your ultimate authority. Is that where you are? Are you experiencing that kind of freedom? If you are, you have the world in checkmate. Nothing will be able to phase you. Peter's calling us to this great idea, this beautiful idea of submission. That's how in verse 17, we're able to honor everyone. That's a daunting task, but not for freed people, not for God's people, not for a holy nation. That if that's you, you can honor everyone. You can love the brotherhood. That's possible because you're his, because you see him as ultimate authority. Verse 18 talks about servants or slaves, depending on your translation and being subject to their masters. So I don't want to get hung up on this, but I don't want to move right away to an employer-employee relationship. That's typically what we do, and sometimes I hear speakers and commentaries, we immediately move right past that. 
but it's something we need to talk about. Last week, we talked about some difficult things. This week, we're talking about a difficult thing. It's part of going through the book of, a book of the Bible, is we don't get to pick and choose what we want to hear, right? We get to see God's word. It's living, it's abiding, and it pierces our hearts. It convicts us. Listen, if that's you this morning, that's a good thing. If that's happening to this point, that's a good thing. If you wrestle with something like slavery, that's a good thing. This was written by an infinite God, and we're finite people. We need to wrestle with it. So I'm going to give you a couple things, but you need to go home and read it. Look it up. Research it. 66 books, right? 40-plus authors, written over 1,500 years. You're not going to get it one hour on a Sunday. You're not going to be able to palm it through one hour on a Sunday like a basketball. What you want is it to palm you. It's to study you, and for that to happen, you need to read it. There's lots of things in here. This is a rich, rich book. You need to go and read it. But with that said, now that you're going to all go and read your Bibles, right? Okay. Here's a few things on slavery. Slavery was different than it is now. In that day in the Roman Empire, a lot of people were slaves, first of all. That doesn't make it right, but a lot of people were slaves. It was embedded into the culture. Oftentimes, if you needed to pay off debt, you became a servant, right? And until you could purchase your freedom, you were a slave, a, a servant to a, a master. But it was always an indefinite time. It was something you could purchase your way out of. A lot of scholars believe that slaves in that day, servants in that day could own property. They could achieve social advancement. They could be released at a set time. So it's different. Listen, I'm not saying it's good. As I read some of the commentaries on this, it kind of frustrated me a little bit that, oh, it's totally different back then. Well, it's still slavery. There's still a master. It shouldn't be that way. And Scripture all the time hits on freedom, freedom, freedom. And so you should wrestle with that too. But just know it's different than what we see in the 19th century. It's a different ballgame. It's totally different. So you need to know that first. Some of you think, well, yeah, but it's still that same relationship. Some of you might be frustrated, and listen, you're not alone. There was people in Jesus' day who were frustrated about his methods. So as you read the Gospels, what do you see about the life of Jesus? Did Jesus try to overthrow a government, or did he overthrow hearts? Hearts. That his disciples, that the Jewish leaders that everybody around Jesus said, when are you going to set up your kingdom? When are you going to blow away the Roman Empire and set up your kingdom? When are you going to change things politically and socially? And Jesus always went back to the heart because Jesus' mission is to change hearts that will then change the world. Do you see it? That it's the same way today. It's why you're here, is that Jesus wants to change your heart and that we as a collective body would go out and change the world. It doesn't mean he, he won't at a time abolish things, change things structurally, but at the core of Jesus' methods was to change the heart. Because that's where evil really lies, right? If you can change the heart, if you can change the person, you can change the world. And so why didn't Jesus abolish this? Why doesn't God get rid of the system instead of working in the system? It's a valid question. You need to know at the end of the day that God knows and he knows better than we do. That God knew that he needed to change hearts and not a political structure. 
And listen, I'm thankful that today in America we don't have slavery, right? I'm thankful for that. I know in other places of the world there still is slavery. And listen, we need to pray that God would change hearts, that God would change people, that God would change policies to get rid of that. Because it's ugly, it's dark, and there's no place of it in our world. But as we look at this, that's some context for you. I hope that helps you. Go back and read it. Study it in your community. Talk about it. Flesh it out more. But that's what we see in the Bible. That's what scholars have seen for uh, years. And that's what we're going to look at and see through a lens of today. And so practically, how do we apply that? What does that look like for you? Or really, you just want to think about any authorities in your life. So a boss, a supervisor, our government, elected officials, a teacher, a professor, and you want to ask, just like it says in that verse, how can we do good when we're under unjust rule? How can we do good when it's difficult? I just read this morning, the Church of England, it was really interesting, the Church of England put out a message to say they were praying for a guy named Richard Dawkins. If you don't know who that is, he's a well-known atheist, entirely against religion and God. It's like his life mission And the Church of England put out a message because he had a stroke. And they said, prayers go out to Richard Dawkins and his family. And the whole article, CNN.com, you can read it. The whole article talked about how there was all this blowback (laughs) at the Church of England for saying they were praying for Richard Dawkins. Like, was that a sarcastic remark? Were they trying to throw that in his face in a tough time in his family's life? And I read that, and I don't know their motive, but I just thought, man, how amazing would it be if we did good under unjust authority, and the worst thing people could say about us is that we prayed too much. (laughs) How amazing would it be in our government, in our day, with all these current events that scare us, and all these things in our city that happen, how amazing would it be if the biggest criticism you could throw at Christians was they pray too much? We need to be those people who do good even when the people above us are unjust. And listen, that's your boss at work. That's your professor who tries to get you to deny your faith. That's a president you may not always agree with. That in those moments that we would do good, that we would pray, that we would live honorable lives like Peter talked about last week. So that one day these people would glorify God because they see you and the way that you live. Listen, that's long. That's hard. That's not the easy fix. But that's what God is calling you to. And some of you, even as you hear that, maybe you're hearing this whole message and you're, you're, you're listening. Some of you are taking notes. But if you're honest, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, Yeah, but Tim, this doesn't work in real life. I mean, sure, this sounds nice. I mean, Jesus did it. Peter's calling us to do it. But reality sets in. And in my job and in our government, this doesn't really work. And in the back of your mind, you think, I'm going to go back to the same patterns in the same way that I live my life before. Listen, if that's you, you have to make a decision at some point in life. You have to make a decision at some point in life. Are you going to see all of life through your lens? 
or are you going to see all of life through God's lens? Do you see the difference? Do you see the gap? Do you see the difference between those two? There's only two options in all of life. Are you going to see all of life through a a lens of self, or are you going to see all of life through a lens of God? You have to make a decision. If you don't know Jesus, you have to make a decision to submit your life to him and believe in Jesus. If you know Jesus, at some point, the daily decisions of your life, how all of this gets worked out, you have to make a decision. Are you going to look through a lens of self or God? Are you going to be God? Or are you going to let God be God in every arena of your life, even when things you read that you don't like? You have to make a decision. Listen, God is always the better option, amen? That God is just. That we're going to read a little bit later that Jesus entrusted himself to the Father because he judges justly. You know what's true about us? You know what's true about me? I don't judge justly. It's always slightly in my favor. You know what's true about you? You don't judge justly. It's always slightly in your favor because we're sinful, right? God is not. God is loving. God is righteous. God is just. That's his character. That's who he is. And he is the one who is reigning, not us. And as much as we want to fight for control and fight for power and not submit, that his way is always going to be better. And it may take us a while to see that. It may take a while for situations to resolve themselves, but just trust me, you have to make a decision. Which one is it going to be? You should always choose God. It's always going to be the better option because he's perfect. You're not. Because he's God. You're not. I want to encourage you, man, if you're wrestling with this, if you're thinking right now like the ways, I'm not really going to live this out or it's too hard or I don't really buy into this, it doesn't work, I would challenge you on that to see things through a lens of God. And we do that by his word, that these are the words of God. It's when we go through the word of God because we want to know how does he see things because we want to align all of life like that under him. And that when we do that, when we set aside our own authority by coming under authority, what happens? We show God as the ultimate authority, that that's Biblical submission, that's what Peter is calling us to. Some of you need to know why. I know for me, I never really got past the stage of why as a kid. I always wanted to know why. And so Peter and and God through Peter is going to give us the why. He gives us this weighty message of submission. But he's going to give us an even weightier motive behind submission. So look at the next verse with me. Verse 13, sorry, we're just going to kind of flip around. Verse 13, it says, why we submit, our motive behind it is for the Lord's sake. That's the very first thing. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Verse 15, it says it's the will of God. Verse 21 says, to this you have been called, that submission is how you fulfill God's calling on your life. The third reason why we submit is we put grace on display when we submit. That two times in these verses, it says, for this is a gracious thing. For this is a gracious thing. Verse 19, verse 20, and verse 20 says specifically, this is a gracious thing in the sight of 
God. We've talked about it in this series that God sees and God knows. And you need to know when you're being treated unjustly, when you're submitting to authority, that God sees and God knows that too. And it says in verse 20 that this is a grace and that it's in the sight of God, that God doesn't sleep, God doesn't slumber, that he sees exactly what's going on at your job. He sees exactly what's going on in our government. He sees it. He knows it. It's in his sight, and it's a grace to you because you get to put him on display. We're going to read about in a second Jesus, who was reviled but didn't revile in return, who was completely innocent, no deceit in his mouth, and yet he was crucified because there was a greater purpose, right? We're going to see that example in a few moments of Jesus, but what Peter is calling us to is the why of this, it's for the Lord's sake. It's the will of God. And some of us, as we hear the will of God, we think, yeah, I want to know the will of God. That's one of the most popular questions Christians ask. Like, what is God's will for my life? We see it right here, verse 15. This is the will of God. And some of you are thinking, well, I don't mean that will. I don't mean the revealed will of God. I want the hidden will of God. Like, who am I supposed to marry? Like, what job am I supposed to take? Like, I don't, I don't want this will. I want the, the hidden will of God. Listen, as we read about the will of God, as you search for all those things in your life, and they're good things to search for, what God is telling you to do is wisdom and discernment. Start with obeying the revealed will of God. Start there. And that as you do that, he's going to work out his hidden will. He's going to show you who to marry. He's going to show you what job to take. He's going to show you what job to leave. He's going to show you how to vote. He's going to show you how to serve in the church. He's going to show you how to treat your spouse. You start with the revealed will, and then he works out his hidden will in and through your life. So many times we're looking for that hidden gem. We're looking for that answer, that that genie to show up and tell us what we need and show us what we want and fulfill all of those things. And we don't start with submitting to God, to his word, to submission, that this is his will, that we start there, that you start there, that it's his will. That's ultimately why we do it. The reason we don't do that, the reason we keep searching and don't respond to his revealed will is because we want to be in control, Right? That the biggest enemy of submission is not the government, it's not corruption, it's me, it's you. That ultimately we want to leave God out of the equation, and Peter makes it clear, no, you submit for the Lord's sake. You submit because this is what he has called you to. This is his revealed will in your life, how Christians should function. We're going to talk about it over the next few weeks, marriage, society, Church, this is how we should live our lives. It's his will for your life. The last thing we see, we got the meaning, we got the motive, and then we have the means. Verse 21, look at that verse. It says, for this to you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. How do we do this? How do we submit? We look to Jesus. We submit to him, to his example, that he's the perfect example. Verses 21 through 25, we see how Jesus lived this out perfectly, that he is our example, that we can look to him and see how we do this. That I heard one guy say it like this, that it's like tracing, and that Jesus gave us the perfect model to trace. And some of you have kids, and and maybe when they were little, they would trace letters, right? They would trace pictures. Before they knew how to do it themselves, they would trace an example. That's the life of Jesus, That as you read the Gospels and you see how he lived in every situation, how he submitted, how he lived righteously, you trace your life after his. That's how we do this. He's the means. He's the example. We follow him because he did it perfectly. He shows us that our trust is ultimately in a just father, not in an imperfect leader. Verse 23 that we're justified before God, our ultimate authority is him, that he's our shepherd, that he's the ultimate authority, that he's the overseer of our souls, not just our rights. He's the overseer of our souls, verses 24 and 25. And so as we talk about submission that we see, and you feel this right now, I feel this right now as I preach it, that it's not natural, But what you need to see, it's a righteous thing to do. And Jesus models that perfectly. And so we need to daily, regularly submit ourselves to Jesus. Look to Jesus so we can see how to live this out. We won't be able to do it if not. Some of you this week have had battles with sin and you lost. Some of you this week have had difficulties living out a a righteous life. You don't feel like you're equipped for it. It doesn't all make sense to you. It doesn't come naturally for you. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus bore all of that on your behalf. That's the gospel. That Jesus takes your sin, that he enables you to die to it and to live righteously in him. And what we see from Peter, what we see in the life of Jesus, a big outworking of that is submission. It's a righteous thing. As we begin to understand how we're freed up in the gospel how he took our sins so we could live righteous, so we could submit. That's how we do this. It's not about trying harder. It's not about working on some tactics. It's about looking to Jesus and regularly submitting yourself to him. And so here's what that means. It's not natural, so you gotta make it natural. You gotta redevelop and reshape the patterns in your life. So coming to church once or twice a month, it's not gonna get it. You need to regularly put yourself around other people and worshiping God, putting yourself under the authority of his word in a community. When you go out in the week, you don't need to isolate. You need to put yourself around other people that remind you, we need to submit. This is the righteous thing to do. This is what Jesus has done for us so that we can live this out. You need to be around other people who remind you because you'll forget. You need to be daily reading the word and reminding yourself and reminding yourself and reminding yourself and reminding yourself of the gospel over and over and over. Because you can't do this 
in isolation, and you can't do this alone. You need to practice it regularly, submitting to Jesus Christ, looking at him and all that he has wrought for you in the cross, that you're freed up to live like this. So I do want to give you some tools just as we close. Just four things, how we live this out. The first thing is this, that we honor publicly and privately. It means we don't slander. It means we don't gossip, that we honor publicly and privately. So many times in our culture, and we do this in the church, is we magnify certain sins, right? Like lust, that's a really bad sin. Like drunkenness, it's a really bad sin. Maybe even greed. But slander, oh, that's just my personality. I just like to speak my mind. I mean, they ask me a question, I can't lie. Right? How many times do we minimize slander? We're all laughing because we all do it, right? Don't slander. The scripture tells us to honor everyone, publicly, privately. Listen, you need to know your triggers. What causes you to move towards slander instead of honor? You need to ask your spouse. And when I'm home and I'm just ranting about people over me and slandering them on Facebook, ask your spouse, what, what causes you to do that? What riles you up to where you do that? What brings you out of that to where you be, can begin to honor them? You need to figure out what those things are in your life. Honor publicly and privately. The second thing is pray before protest. We're so quick to protest, but how often do we lift up our authorities in prayer? How often do you pray for your leaders, for the leaders of our church, for the leaders of our city, for the leaders of our nation? How often are you praying for them? Are you only protesting them? We have a great opportunity to do that this Wednesday. Leah Wolf, uh, just a part of our church, is rallying people together through a, a Facebook event and invites to say, hey, on, on the 17th, that's this Wednesday, if you know Jesus, pray for the city of Phoenix. We talked about it last week, but the city of Phoenix, the city council is doing away with the, the invocation at their uh, meetings. It's interesting because I got to be one of the last people to give that prayer. I don't know what that means, but they're, but they're doing away with that. And um, I got a, an email on Friday of one of the local news reporters asking me for a, a comment and, and to learn more about this. And I don't know if I'm going to do it or not, but I know if I do, I'm going to say this, that we should pray before we protest, that we should proclaim before we protect. That's how we live good lives. That's how we live honorable lives so that others would see that and honor God and glorify God on the day of visitation. I encourage you to participate in that. We're not going to gather together. Some of you can, uh, but on the 17th, the city council meeting is that day, and so we're going to ask you to pray in your car, at work, with your group, that you would pray this Wednesday. Set a reminder in your phone. Pray over our city that God would use the men and women in this city to glorify him, to make much of him, to soften their hearts. That you would pray that we would do that. As Phoenix Bible Church, we would be known as a praying people more than a protesting people. The third thing, respond respectfully. And so listen, I know there's going to be times when you need to push back, and there are, absolutely. But when you do, how can you do so respectfully? 
How can you do so with integrity, with a Christ-like disposition? When you vote, when you write letters, when you speak out, that you're still honoring, you're still respecting authority as you honor God. When you push back, do so respectfully. The last thing, we said it last week, but trust God's justice more than your vengeance. We see that in verse 23, that Jesus entrusted himself to the Father when he was slandered, when he was accused, when he was betrayed, when he was even being killed, he entrusted himself to the Father. He didn't go back at him. He knew there was a greater purpose. He knew that he was going to rise again and win in the end. And so he could entrust himself to a, a just Father. So are you working under a boss who is great some days, but on other days, seems like he woke up on the wrong side of the bed? Are you sitting before an authority that you think, man, that guy, he wronged me. Listen, who are those people in your lives? Think through those people in your lives. Maybe it was a church. Maybe it was a, a father. Maybe it was somebody else, and you just feel like they were an authority figure. And I put them up on this pedestal, and, and it didn't go well. Like, What do I do with that? You trust God's justice. Sorry. You trust God's justice more than your more than your vengeance. Because he's just, because he's loving. Because we're not. So listen, here's what that means as we close. That you own what you need to own, and you let the rest go. That the reality is, is as much as somebody has wronged you, that there's something you contributed to that, right? As I look back in my life and think about those situations, I, mean, I begin to paint those pictures in my life. And I begin to think about, what, but you don't understand what they did. How am I going to submit to that? i gotta, I got to speak out against this. i got to let people know. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to do that. You're free from that. You can trust God's justice over your vengeance. It's always going to win out. Always. It may take a year. It may take two years. It may take a longer amount of time. It may be difficult. You may not see it right away, but God's got a greater purpose. And he's working that in and through you as you submit to him. Listen, big idea of today, that you set aside your own authority by submitting under authority to show God as the ultimate authority, that we do that individually, collectively, together as the body of Christ. And we do it because we look to Jesus, who modeled it perfectly. We need to pray, right? We need to pray towards that end. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, God, I thank you for 
the example of Jesus. God, I know this, this morning that as I look across the room, there, there's men and women in this room who have been wronged, they've been wrongly accused, they've been led in an evil way, they've been called to do things that they, they didn't agree with, they've had conflict at work, they've had conflict with our government, maybe they've had conflict in the church with authorities there, and, and as we're thinking about all those things, God, I pray that we would see you as the ultimate authority, that you allowed them to be an authority, that you're working a greater purpose, that ultimately it's for your glory and for our joy, and God, we would trust that, and we would trust your justice more than our vengeance. We would honor publicly and privately. We would pray for our authorities. Boldly, God, that you would give us that desire to pray boldly, to proclaim you boldly, and to not always run to protecting and protesting, but God, we would submit to you in prayer, in honor, and respect, because we know when we do that, we have the world in checkmate. We can't be shaken. We can't be held down by fear. We can follow you freely. We can worship you fully. And so, God, I, I pray as we look at a, a difficult text of submission that you would work this out in our lives. God, that by your spirit, through your word, this would penetrate our hearts and it would work itself out to our hands. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.